The new generation of Israel is about to cross the Jordan River. Moses has this, these last words for them before they go across and enter into Canaan. Moses cannot go with them. He must leave with them the final address that God had given to him for them. They will get the freshest start of, I guess, any nation that I can think of. A fresh new generation who had the hindsight of considering the mistakes of their fathers, having grown up in the presence of Yahweh with uh, the tremendous leadership of Moses. Many scholars think, I don't necessarily think this, but many scholars think that Moses is the second greatest character of the Bible after, of course, Jesus. Well, the way I see it, uh, Moses was prepared and separated, then called out and sent forth to do the work that he did. Nobody else grew up in Pharaoh's household or had the experience of the Egyptian army. And, and so another generation, that didn't, that's not something that would apply. So to me, characters in the Bible, servants of the Lord, are peculiar in particular because of who they are because of their certain circumstances, because of the needs of the day in the Lord's work. But that said, again, some people regard Moses as, as the second greatest. He was a great man. Who could do what he did? He, um, uh, he was there to be the administrator of the birth, the official birth of a nation, um, and... <laughs> To keep them together and to carry them as far as he did was just uh, a miracle in itself. So it was important for them and for him to take this repeat of the law, the repeat of their historical experience, and to make sure that they don't make the same mistakes that have been made in a previous generation and that they are committed to the word that Yahweh had given to his people through Moses, which is namely the Torah, the law. That's all the Bible, that's all the written Bible that existed at this point in time. Now we've come to this part, uh, continuing in the last part of the uh, Ten Commandments. We're going to look at two of them, the two of these last ones tonight. I have it uh, in bold print here. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. Of course, all of these Ten Commandments are, for, are given to Israel in their law. This is an Israelite thing. Perhaps there was a, a, a leader um, prior to Egypt or in the time of the growth of Egypt, Hammurabi. Hammurabi had... Uh, a set of laws. Some of them are very similar to the laws that Moses gave to Israel. And it's interesting to note that in early nations, there was a moral code, even though, for example, the nation, of, uh, the nation over which Hammurabi ruled was not the, they were not the people of God, and yet there existed a moral code 
that, that made its way into part of their law, which goes back, I suppose, even to Shem, who was alive at the Tower of Babel. And there would have been some transmission of information from that son of Moses who was separated from the other one, a son of Noah, who was separated from the other ones, blessed be the Lord God, the, the Yahweh Elohim of Shem. Uh, some believe that Shem was uh, Melchizedek, uh, the, which it could be a name or a title, the king of, of uh, righteousness. But all of that said, that's just something to think about. Here is a, a foundation of both spiritual and the, the entire law, not the, the ten, ten Commandments as well. A spiritual and a civil foundation. The Ten Commandments, just Ten Commandments, only ten of them, but if pursued in obedience by righteous people, though none of us are perfect and the law cannot save us, yet the pursuit to obey these Ten Commandments would somewhat be a buffer against the world and, and a guarantee that any society who actively and openly pursued obedience to those Ten Commandments would be a responsible and solid society, especially when that society had a covenant with Yahweh. So this is where they are. We come to these next two Ten Commandments. You shall not murder and you shall not commit adultery. Let's consider then murder teaches God's people about the sanctity of life and then the, the uh, command not to commit adultery teaches God's people about the sanctity of marriage. Several points to be made. That's why we're only going to look at these two. In the Bible overall, killing is defined. Actually, it's written correctly here. It says you should not commit murder. Now, King James Version says you should not kill. That's another Hebrew word that covers, I mean, you know, anything. But here to commit murder in the, in the Hebrew text, well, I've already left the text. Um, in the Hebrew text uh, speaks of a, of a vicious and premeditated act by someone. We're made in the image of God. Life, man was the crown of creation. If you want to look at it, he was the last thing on the sixth day. And carefully, God took the woman out of his side and the two become man, mankind. This is the, this is the building block, mankind. Man and woman, mankind. This is the building block of the organism of humanity from whence God would extract the elect, those whom he had given to his son. It's extraordinarily, I mean, it's, it's, the, it's among the chief things of importance in the Bible, human life. Um, in Genesis chapter nine, God imposed through mankind capital punishment. And it was for murder. 
If, if a man sheds another man's blood, then by that, then that man's blood must be shed. When it is expanded through the scriptures, there are several definitions of killing. Here we go. The first that we're going to consider is accidentally killing someone. That's like manslaughter. You didn't mean to, but you did something that caused the death of another person. Now that's addressed in the law of Moses. There were cities of refuge that were built and separated for those who had committed some kind of manslaughter, some sort of accidental killing. They could make their way quickly to a city of refuge and there they would be protected from anyone who sought revenge. As long as they were in those cities of refuge, the command to take the blood of the man who took the blood of another man did not apply. Cities of refuge, a kind of manslaughter, uh, accidental, accidental killing. Then there's the principle of magistrates that is established in the scripture whereby God only, listen, only God can take a life, a human life. But God in his word grants that right to proxies, magistrates, a king or someone that's in authority, that is in recognized authority. Therefore, when a person commits murder, and this, this has to do with capital punishment, uh, not with anything else, just capital punishment. In capital punishment, the Bible describes a process, human government, uh, that was established. Uh, that's one of the dispensations, the establishment of human government. Now, human government, we also learn, will ultimately fail because it surrenders quietly, subtly, and surely to the principles of the world which in the end of it begins to mistreat people and God brings it into judgment and puts down that government and rise, raises up another government. But Paul writes to the Romans and he says that the sword of the magistrate is not born in vain. That speaks of capital punishment. God then grants these proxies, these magistrates or, or official ruler the right to carry out capital punishment. So when someone is killed under the mandate of capital punishment, that's, that's not murder. That's not the murder that is, that is defined here in uh, this commandment. You shall not commit murder. It's, it doesn't apply to the magistrate who rightfully and through justice imposes capital punishment. War. God sanctioned war quite a few times in the Bible. And we are commanded to be obedient to our rulers in the book of Romans. So if we're in a war and uh, the war is defined as, you know, good versus evil or whatever, to kill someone in the act of war is not an act of murder. That's very clear 
and plain in the scripture. Suicide has to be murder. It has to be considered murder. It is not an unpardonable sin. Uh, For example, Samson committed murder, uh, suicide. He committed suicide. He killed himself. Yet he is seen as a hero in Hebrews 11. So suicide is, I mean, I'm I'm not telling everybody to go commit suicide, but what I am saying is we know enough about the human structure and we have three parts in our existence as a human. We have a spiritual part, we have an emotional part, and we have a physical part. The one that is most likely to get out of control is the emotional part. And people's minds can play tricks on them and and such. So suicide is murder, of course. It's a person killing himself. It's self-murder. But I want to hasten to add that suicide, what happens when a guy jumps on a grenade to save his buddies? He killed himself. He knew what he was doing. That was suicide, but that's, that's that's not a condemnable thing. He killed himself. But uh, in the instant and heat of the moment, uh, it was a noble thing. Even Christ said, there's no greater love than this if you lay down your life for your friend. So, yes, suicide is murder in a sense, can be seen as that, but in, but in many cases can be understood uh, like in the case that I just uh, described. In the day in which we live, as a pastor, probably uh, three times in my nearly 50 years as a pastor, maybe three times, uh, I've known of people who otherwise had lived good Christian lives and yet ended their lives in suicide. And it was because they had been prescribed new and different kinds of medication. And later studies had shown that uh, one of the severe side effects would be suicide to take. So, so you know, how do you, how do you, well, yes, it's a, it's a person, a person committing suicide. Uh, two of those three hung themselves. Okay. So it's, it's not like they stumbled down the stairs and broke their necks. All right, so suicide is indeed a kind of murder, but it isn't the kind of murder that's defined here in uh, thou shalt not commit murder. Well, it can be. It, I mean, let me say it can be. Suicide is a complicated thing. It's, a, it's an awful thing. It's a terrible way uh, to imagine that you're, that you're solving a problem which only creates a plethora of, of problems and heartaches in life. So suicide has to be carefully considered, but it's going to be hard to kill a guy for killing himself, right? Uh, you're not going to have capital punishment on him. Abortion on demand. Abortion on demand is murder. It, is, it doesn't take a great depth of rationale and reason 
to understand that abortion is murder. Now, modern terminology or vernacular, whatever, uh, people excuse it by saying that the woman has a choice over her body. However, the biblical worldview, of course, is it's not her body. She's, she's designed to do her part in the, in the reproduction of uh, the human race. But uh, the Bible carefully divides the, or uh, presents the truth that those two bodies are divided. And she doesn't really have that. Authority. So you can, you can ask an abortionist, if, if left alone, what will happen to what is in her womb? It will develop. It will be born. Will it be a part of the human race? Yes. So it'll be a man or a woman. It'll be a human being. Yes. Well, then it doesn't take any kind of intelligence at all to realize that this is a human in its development and it's already alive. It, it has a trace of blood practically at the moment of conception. And that trace of blood, we are told, is the evidence of life. For blood is life, according to the scriptures. The life of the flesh is in the blood. That's what the Bible says. So if there's blood, there's life. Now, if this thing, if this thing is a human and it's just in the process of development, has its own blood, as a matter of fact, it can produce its own type of blood, separate from the type of the mother's blood. It has its own heartbeat fairly quickly in the process. So to destroy that is the destruction of human life. And that has to be considered murder from a biblical worldview. Uh, although the world tries to convince the world otherwise. And now today, a growing thing I, I read just this past week about uh, um, the Canadian guy, Trudeau. Um, he was, the, the euthanasia is legal in Canada, uh, as I understand it. I don't know what kind of process you have to go through to get permission to kill an old person or a useless, so-called useless person. But in Canada, it's somebody taking into their hands the, the responsibility, I guess, of uh, ending a life. Terminating someone whom somebody had determined to be useless or it was costing too much to keep the person around. You know, it's, it's that kind of thing. Euthanasia, that's murder. That can't be considered anything other than murder. According to the biblical definition, when, when you take another person's life, you do it with forethought and actually with malice. It can't be considered any other way, in my view. Euthanasia. So there are... There are definitions of killing in the Bible, and many of those would fall right under uh, the command to not commit murder, because life is, is sanctified. God has declared the sanctity of life in the human race. Now, these people are God's chosen people, and in God's word, children are seen as a, as a blessing and a heritage and a wonderful thing in their instructions in these first five books of how they're to teach their children 
uh, the law, the word of God. And so this is how, this is how the great theocratic kingdom that's to be birthed here in Canaan, uh, later to be ruled over by a son of David, this is, this is how it starts. How, how can the promise of a nation develop if we are free just to kill a human before he ever develops in the womb? That, that doesn't meet any kind of litmus test in the scripture. But sanctity of marriage. Anyway, the serious of adultery in God's word. Adultery in the Old Testament is punishable by death. The relationship, the institution of marriage was created by God. And it was so that mankind, the man and the woman, so that mankind would fill the earth. This was going to be to the glory of God. In a perfect and unfallen state, it is, it is the joy and natural essence of existence from God's created human being, human, human creation. It, it, is, it is the natural thing for the human race to praise and glorify the creator, to love him, to trust him. And he then would, of course, give blessing uh, to the human race. And this is how it started. But, and there are warnings about how serious it is to breach the sanctity of marriage. It brings death, the penalty of death. And that is because there is more than just a physiological thing uh, regarding procreation, uh, there's also a, a spiritual les a lesson that is seen in the scriptures. We'll talk about that in just a second. Uh, but the seriousness of committing adultery is seen in the penalty, which is death. There's no greater penalty than the penalty of death. It, uh, adultery does so many things. I'm going to come back. I'll come back to point number two. And then we jump to point number three here under the sanctity of marriage. Adultery reaps both earthly or temporal and eternal consequences. Lives are ruined. How many generations does it take to in some way be restored to normalcy or or? to be brought back to the strength that one would have had otherwise had there never been adultery introduced into the institution of marriage. Now, in a temporal sense, it, it ruins the husband and the wife. And Is it on? Yeah. Oh, I'll just turn this one off. Okay. 
So all around the world, they will never know the seriousness of adultery. <laughs> Except for the few who are here. The privileged few. You can understand the temporal consequence. As a matter of fact, obviously it is, it is a focus of the work of Satan to destroy families. I would say by studying the scriptures, if you can study, if you can destroy the role of the father, you've gone a long way destroying the family unit. So there's an attack on manhood and, and fatherhood and this kind of thing. And the people of God have the spirit of God and it's our call just to stand against it on the basis of the word of God. But there has been a collapse in that in the modern world, especially in our culture today, a collapse of manhood and a collapse. I don't know how this happens. And I, I, I'm just quoting something I read as though I believe everything I read. But it's been maybe a year ago. No, I didn't read it. I heard it on Timcast. We watched this guy who is, he's a, he studies all of the modern issues from all of the news sources everywhere. And he discusses it. And, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but what he said was, and he had the, he had the article up there on his screen, online on his show, and it said that the level of testosterone in the male, in the United States male population today is one third of what it was in the 40s and 50s. I don't know what that means other than somehow, in some way, if that's a true report, in that way, manhood is, is under attack. Fatherhood is under, I mentioned this not long ago, how if you watch a, a sitcom or even commercials or whatever, who is the dopey idiot when you watch a commercial? It's the daddy, right? He has no clue. He's the dope. He's the dumb one. He's the stupid guy. He is the least important of those who are there in whatever little story is being told. And, and that is totally opposite of the word of God. Totally opposite. So there's an attack on manhood, there's an attack on womanhood, there's an attack on fatherhood, there's an attack on motherhood. All of these things come under the truth that when those things happen, there is a temporal consequence, there's a, there, there's a set of consequences that will be suffered. Now, consider our society today, go backward in time, um, I don't know, 50 years, I have, have not too far back, and when that attack began and the man began to forsake his role and the woman begins to forsake her role and then marriage takes on less than an important uh, role in society and culture and you have children left to themselves because there is no understood and direct line of discipline and authority, that society will collapse within a generation or two. And of course that's the design of Satan. All that begins, it goes back to adultery. Adultery is defined as um, the, the sexual misbehavior of a married person. That's adultery. Okay, so not only does it reap uh, temporal consequences, 
I would submit that it, it reaps eternal consequences as well. There's a spiritual side of adultery. It's not really what's addressed in the Ten Commandments, but the Lord in Hosea speaks of divorcing Israel, for example. Israel considered in an illustration way is not like Christ in the church, but in an illustration using Hosea and Gomer, his wife, his unfaithful wife. And, and so, you know, Yahweh says to Hosea, th through Hosea to the people, Gomer, you, uh, Hosea, you know how I feel now. You, you have, you, you see what I'm facing. Uh, and, and your heart, as broken as it is, my heart is broken. And so in Hosea, God brings a controversy. God brings, God brings his case to divorce court. That's what Hosea is about. And he presents his case as to what happens. So the, the priority, the preeminence of married life is a high illustration of how God interacts with his people in a, in a spiritual sense. Therefore, there would be eternal consequences when you think of how that works out and how it's seen in the destruction. And we're we've just finished studying uh, the demise and collapse of both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of, G of Judah. One of the charges brought against Israel was that the people were constantly committing adultery. There was, there, there was no specialness about, about the institution of marriage. It, they just, it, was, it was a trivial thing. We'll get to that in just a second as well. Um, so the next thing, and I, I'll get back to number two in a couple of seconds, but Today's casual attitude toward adultery is something to be considered. It's everywhere. You won't go home tonight and watch anything on any network without it having somewhere in the course of an hour or two the act of adultery. Sometimes it is portrayed as the heroic and, wonder, heroic and wonderful thing to do. Oh, it's about time they got together. They loved each other. It's horrible. It's a casual, trivial thing in our society today to trivialize marriage, which is something that God puts such, um, he, puts, he puts such a value to it that in his law, he carefully said, if you commit adultery, you'll die. You'll be put to death. Now back up to the second point. Our bodies are linked with Christ. Paul makes this clear in 1 Corinthians 6. In which he says adultery is idolatry. Idolatry is the very thing that destroyed nations. We just went through it. We just saw it in Kings and Chronicles. Their tendency toward idolatry more and more uh, to displace a belief in the true and living God and to replace it with something that's very sensual and earthen and, uh, and lustful and licentious. 
This eventually brought then the destruction of those two nations. Well, you go to the New Testament. What is the illustration that is used in the relationship between Christ and his church? The relationship of husband and wife. As a matter, as a matter of fact, when we were raptured and, and cleaned up and dressed up at the rapture, and the, at the first resurrection, and the church stands before her Lord, what is among the first things we'll enjoy? A marriage supper. Because of the relationship that is presented that exists between Christ and his church. Now, people who have a trivial attitude toward uh, marriage and adultery won't appreciate what is about to happen eternally I mean, we move from betrothal to marriage. What a, what a, what a tremendous thought. And considered then to be the, the bride of Christ. Paul says more than just what I've said, but there's a fairly lengthy, lengthy discourse about how our bodies are linked with Christ. It's in that same context that says that our bodies are the temple of of the Lord. So our bodies are precious and they're important and we are therefore expected to maintain holiness and purity in our lives. And the top way to do that is to maintain purity in marital life. Finally, adultery, to commit adultery is a statement of utter discontent against God claiming and declaring that the person is just going to knowingly break the rules and boundaries that God has established. That is utter rebellion, reprobation, uh, and will be punished, of course. It will be punished. Well, okay, we've covered those two, and if God will be pleased, next time we'll take the rest of the commandments as Moses is reminding the people. So we'll be dismissed now in prayer. Father God in heaven, thank you for your word. Lord, although we know that the Ten Commandments can't save us, we also know that they are a blueprint to give us the best kind of life that we can have if we would but pursue obedience and demand the same of those who are around us. God help us in that effort. In Jesus' name, amen.